I invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn with me to the 13th chapter of John. The Gospel of John chapter 13. You know, I've always been intrigued to read the the final departing words of people as they face the brink and the wave of death. You see, it's at this crucial hour that you are given a glimpse of understanding into the heart of a particular person. A person's departing words can have lasting and enduring significance. And one of my favorite accounts comes from the, the life of the great 20th century Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones was visited in the final days of his earthly pilgrimage here on earth by one of his pastoral colleagues. He then asked the great doctor what he wanted to be said in his eulogy at his funeral, to which Martin Lloyd-Jones responded, tell them I am a unworthy servant and a forgiven sinner. That is all, nothing else. You see, Martin Lloyd-Jones had stood as a beacon of truth and light in the midst of a culture in England that had embraced liberalism and ecumenicalism. Martin Lloyd-Jones had contended earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He had advocated for the purity of the gospel and was hailed on both sides of the Atlantic as being the greatest expositor of the 20th century. Yet here, in his final words, the doctor humbly acknowledges and proclaims that he was a mere product of sovereign grace. And these words have personally and profoundly had a deep impact upon my own life, so much so that there is a portrait of the great doctor overlooking my study and consequently our dining room table as well. And if you receive a formal correspondence from me via email or something of this sort, my final line generally is an unworthy servant or a forgiven sinner because that is the mindset that we must adopt as rebels saved by grace. And my point in saying all of this is that a person's departing words, a person's final words can have a lasting and enduring influence upon generations to come. And it is my privilege this morning to introduce us to a study that will allow us to peer into the heart of the Savior as he addresses his disciples and subsequently all who would believe through their word on the eve of his passion. This summer, we have the privilege of considering a portion of John's gospel that has been titled the Upper Room Discourse or the Farewell Discourse. And this portion of scripture has received its name due to the location of the address as it was given in the upper room, along with the fact that Jesus provides final departing words, final departing instruction to his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion and eventual ascension to the Father. In other words, these are the departing words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, contained in five chapters encapsulated in 155 verses are bread for life and manna from heaven, which you can nourish your soul. The overall theme of the upper room discourse can be summarized as this. It is the private and the personal instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ to his followers, teaching us how to live and to minister 
subsequent to his ascension to the majesty on high and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Let me rewind that statement. The upper room discourse teaches us how we are to live into ministers subsequent to Jesus' departure, his ascension on high, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the church age. You know, before embarking on a long journey, typically you want to search out, perform some preliminary investigation into what landmarks or what things that you might see on your journeys. Maybe it's considering what national parks you might pass. Maybe it's geographical features that you might have to encounter, such as winding rivers or majestic and towering mountain peaks. Regardless of the case, before you set out on a long journey, you do some preliminary investigation to what awaits you ahead. And in the same way, this morning, prior to embarking on our verse-by-verse study through this portion of sacred scripture, I want to do some preliminary investigation. I want to search out some of those introductory preliminary considerations that will help us as we navigate verse-by-verse through these glorious chapters of Scripture. And so with that in mind, this morning, I want to provide for you several introductory insights into the Upper Room Discourse. And these insights will serve as navigators, as beacons, as we traverse along our study. And that's where I want to turn our focus and attention the rest of the time this morning. So let's study them together. The first introductory insight that I want us to study together are the reasons for studying the upper room discourse. Why should we study these five chapters of scripture? Out of the 1,189 verses of scripture, why are we choosing this specific focus over the summer? Well, this morning I want to provide four compelling reasons of why the study of the upper room discourse is absolutely essential to your spiritual soul. Four compelling reasons of why this study is essential. And the first one is this, it is to know and cherish the Savior. To know and cherish the Savior with a, with a deeper affection, a greater passion and zeal and adoration. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin in his book, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth, says that the upper room discourse sets open a window into Christ's heart to show how Christ's heart and love would be towards his own even forever when he should be gone unto his father as well as it was to show how it had been here on earth, they being his own. And he having loved them, he alters, he changes not and therefore will love him, love them forever. This quote from Goodwin provides the namesake for which we are going to adopt for our summer series. This summer series will be titled, A Window into the Savior's Heart. And in my mind, there is no greater pursuit, no greater endeavor that we could undertake than to know our Savior more completely, more fully, more richly, more deeply, more comprehensively. This is the greatest pursuit that you can give your life to, as well as myself. We'll discuss this verse later, but in the 17th chapter in verse 3, Jesus prays to the Father. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, 
the true and living God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And if eternal life consists in knowing God the Father and knowing what he has done for sinful mankind through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, then it behooves us this morning to come initially to that knowledge of Jesus Christ the Savior and then after coming to that knowledge to then grow in that grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18. You know, J.I. Packer, the author of Knowing God, says this. He says, disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life in your soul. Well, a second compelling reason for studying the upper room discourse is really the sheer neglect of this portion of scripture. You know, oftentimes as we consider the extended discourses that we have in the gospel of the life of our Lord, typically our minds are prone to go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Or if we're talking about matters of eschatology, we're typically going to maybe the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 through 25 or Mark chapter 13. You see, our general tendency is to potentially overlook this section of Scripture in favor of others. But friends, I want us to sit at the feet of the Savior in the upper room. I want us to drink deeply from the fount of his teaching therein and thereby grow by it. A third reason for studying the upper room discourse is the uniqueness of the upper room discourse. The vast majority of the contents contained in these five chapters are exclusive to John's gospel. As we will discover later this morning, there's even specific themes and specific doctrines that are given greater significance, greater weight and teaching in terms of the upper room discourse that might be merely mentioned in other portions of Scripture. D. Edmund Hebert, the New Testament scholar, notes concerning the gospel of John directly but indirectly of the upper room discourse, saying, the uniqueness of the fourth gospel has always been recognized, causing it to be loved and esteemed as a priceless treasure of the Christian church. You well know that the gospel of John differs from the synoptic gospels, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It has different significance, different themes that are presented and just one of those elements, which one of those unique characteristics is the extended discourse that we have the privilege to study this summer, known as the Upper Room Discourse. And a fourth reason for the study of the Upper Room Discourse is its overall pertinence in the overlife of our church. It is to complement our study of 1 John here at Countryside. You see, as you read through the contents of the first epistle of John, you'll notice that much of the instruction that John gives finds its root and its origin in the upper room discourse. We don't have the time to unpack all of the similarities between the upper room discourse and 1 John, but let me just provide you with a few of the harmonious teachings, a few of the harmonious themes that are woven together that wed these portions of Scripture you know, as we discuss the contents of 1 John, we've come again and again to that prevalent theme of abiding. And as we study through the Upper Room Discourse this summer, you'll notice that that teaching finds its root in the teaching of our Lord in John chapter 15. 
you'll notice the emphasis that Jesus provides to loving one another, to loving the brethren in the upper room discourse is echoed and reflected by the Apostle John in his first epistle. You'll notice the essential role of the Holy Spirit as the divine teacher of Christians, the teacher of truth. You'll notice the contrast between those of this world which is passing away and true bona fide disciples of Jesus Christ. You'll notice the intricate connection that exists between loving God and keeping his commandments. These are just a few of the similar themes and teachings that we're going to unpack this summer that we've already been unpacking in corporate worship together. You see, the study of the upper room discourse provides for us helpful fodder to supplement our study together. Well, now that we have laid the groundwork and discussed some of the reasons behind studying the upper room discourse, I want to provide for us a second introductory insight, and that is the goals in studying the upper room discourse. What should our objectives be as we embark upon this study together? How can you personally use this study in your own life for the greater exaltation of the high king of heaven and the greater edification of your soul? As we previously mentioned, John 17, 3 says, the eternal life consists in knowing God the Father and Jesus Christ, the eternal and incarnate Son of God. You should have as a goal this summer not just to know about Jesus. There's plenty of people that know about Jesus. But to know him, to know him intimately, to know him relationally, to know him experientially and experience communion with the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. So we need to know Christ as Savior and Lord. A second goal that I want to provide you with this morning is this. It is to be comforted by the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our world is chock full of evil that seeks to disrupt your life as a tempest does the wayward ship on the turbulent seas. Whether it be of your own doing, of your own sin and the consequences of that sin, whether it be the effects of living life in a Genesis 3 fallen world, sickness and disease and pain, disrupted relationships, or whether it be ridicule and scorn that is heaped upon you from the unbelieving world, in the upper room discourse, you can recline into the bosom of the Savior and find comfort for your soul. The Savior is the one who says, do not let your heart be troubled. Do not be afraid. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not of the peace of the world, but the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension that can guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. In John chapter 17 we are allowed to listen to the words of the Savior as he prays for his own. The same ministry that he currently right now is doing for you if you are a believer, for those who draw near, he ever lives to make intercession for them. 
just as one of the primary reasons for the upper room discourse was to comfort the disciples there of the immediate departure of the Lord to the Father, so too we can be comforted by the contents of this section. The third goal of this study is that you would be encouraged to faithful service of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, the one who girds himself with the servant's towel, demonstrating such love and humility for his own, ultimately, climactically laying down his life in the stead of his sheep. John 15, 13. You see, the Upper Room Discourse teaches us what it looks like to respond to such magnificent, matchless, and marvelous love. If you love him, you will keep his commandments. If you love him, you will love one another. If you love him, you will abide in him. If you love him, you will be distinct from the world, consecrated unto God. I pray that this study this summer would compel you to faithful service of the Lord and Master who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Friends, I would encourage you to keep these goals ever before your eyes as we navigate this series this summer. Just as a sprinter ever has the finish line in front of him, his eyes fixated upon it, keep these goals in your heart and mind. I would encourage you to pray to God through these goals throughout the study that God would accomplish his purpose in your own heart, in your own life to these ends. A third introductory insight that I want you to be aware of is the author of the Upper Room Discourse. The author of the Upper Room Discourse. Now, I don't want to spend too much time here, but knowing the author can be helpful in providing a key introductory insight. So hang with me for a little bit. Obviously, the primary author is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is his address. This is his discourse given to his followers, to his disciples. But humanly speaking, the one who records these words is the Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, whom we're introduced to in verse 23 of John 13. And while the author of the Gospel of John is never explicitly mentioned, we know that it is attributed to the anonymous disciple whom Jesus loved. And I would submit to you that it's reasonable to conclude that the disciple whom Jesus loved would be one of his inner circle, the inner three, James and John, the sons of Zebedee and Simon Peter, those who were invited farther in the garden, those that were there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And we know from the account in Acts, in Acts chapter 12, that James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, was killed by Herod Agrippa I in A.D. 44. And the Gospel of John is conservatively dated to the latter portion of the first century, sometime in between 85 to 90 AD, which rules out James, the son of Zebedee. So now we're down to Simon Peter and John. Well, look with me in chapter 13 at verse 23 through 25. There we read these words. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him, 
that is the disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to him, tell us of whom it is he is speaking. So obviously from this account, we can understand that the disciple whom Jesus loved, explicitly referenced in verse 23, is not Simon Peter. Turn with me to chapter 21. Chapter 21. This is following the restoration of Peter in verse 20 specifically. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper, and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Let your eyes peruse down to verse 24. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. So it's not James, the son of Zebedee. It's not Simon. The only logical conclusion, along with the unanimous testimony of church history, and the contents of John itself is that the Apostle John wrote this gospel. He wrote the Upper Room Discourse. Now, why does that matter? Why did I take you on that line of deductive reasoning? Let it sink in to your mind that the Apostle John was there. He was reclining in the bosom of the Savior sitting at the feet of his Savior, drinking from his teaching and his instruction. John had personally heard the high priestly prayer that the Lord Jesus Christ had offered on his behalf and on behalf of the other disciples. Now, John devotes 155 verses, five chapters of his 21-chapter gospel to a single night in the life of our Lord. John allows us to peek over his shoulder, as it were, into the heart of the Savior on the night that his hour had dawned. Do you think that this night did not have a profound impact upon the life and the ministry of the apostle? It should have a profound impact upon our own lives. When John writes his first epistle, some 60 years after the night that he heard these words afresh. The very thoughts, the very words of the upper room discourse saturate the words and the instruction that he pens. That is why we would be foolish to neglect such an essential portion of the gospels of this sacred scripture. Now a fourth introductory insight that we need to be aware of are the purposes of the upper room discourse. The purposes of the upper room discourse. Why did the apostle John include this section in his gospel? Why did the Lord Jesus Christ give this instruction to his followers the night before his substitutionary death, before his crucifixion? Now, as we consider this introductory insight together, I want to present two encompassing purposes behind the inclusion of the Upper Room Discourse in our Bible. Two encompassing purposes that undergird this section. And I believe that I am justified in saying that the more remote or the more overarching purpose of the Upper Room Discourse is the same purpose that the Apostle John had in writing the entire Gospel. And in the 20th chapter, John gives us a specific and a definitive purpose statement. 
In verse 31, he says this. These things have been written from John 1.1 to John 21.25, including the Upper Room Discourse, has been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Therefore, the primary purpose of the Gospel of John, more broadly speaking, and the Upper Room Discourse more narrowly in focus, is evangelistic. The purpose is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And let me just stop here and get your attention for a moment. There's a lot of new faces in this room this morning. And I don't know all of the ins and outs of everyone's life and their hearts. But I am convinced upon the authority of the scriptures that there are more than a handful of you this morning that are unbelievers here. There are tares sown amongst the wheat. There are goats scattered amongst the sheep. Some of you might be professors of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, going to church, giving lip service and credence that you believe but you're not genuine possessors of saving faith. Some of you very well could be members of the visible church. You could be members of Countryside Bible Church and yet be outcast of the invisible church, the blood-bought, redeemed body of Christ. You see, believing is not just signing your name on the line of a doctrinal statement. Believing is not just a mental ascent or an intellectual ascent to the truth. Believing is embracing Jesus Christ for all that he is while subsequently spurning everything that the world supposedly offers. Believing, true saving faith is a commitment of your whole self to the whole Christ. It is you relying upon him for all that he is, for all that you are. True belief, true saving faith embraces Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior with every faculty that you have, with your mind, with your heart, with your will. Do you want to benefit from this study this summer? Or would you rather waste your time or rather yet waste your life? Then continue in your unbelief. Continue in your deception. Continue in your rejecting and spurning of the Savior. But my master bids me to compel you to come in. The king of heaven issues a summons to you this morning. Today is the day of salvation, Paul says. Do not tarry. Do not delay. You know not the hour of your death. You know not whence you will appear before the judge. James 5 says the judge is standing at the door. And 
God has furnished proof that he will judge the world in righteousness by raising the judge from the dead. Acts 17, 30 through 31. Some of you will excuse this summons away. Saying, my life is merry. My life is of ease, of comfort right now. I don't want the demands of Christ upon my life. I want to live how I want. The evangelist of the Old Testament says, turn to me, all to the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. The king summons you now, this morning, where you sit. The evangelist Isaiah continues saying, let the wicked man forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to Yahweh and he will have compassion and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Friends, I would be remiss at the outset of a study like this to not issue this summons to you this morning, an ambassador on behalf of Christ, pleading with you, urging with you, be reconciled to God. Believe in his perfect life, that he fulfilled the perceptual demands of the law. He lived in accordance with all righteousness, that he was born of a woman under the law so that he might ransom and redeem those who were under the law. That he fulfilled the penal demands of the law, that your sin, that my sin deserved. That he died as a substitutionary sacrifice on Calvary's cross in the stead of helpless ruined sinners. We sang of such love this morning. Do not abandon it. Do not neglect it. Do not forsake it. Believe in his triumphant, his victorious, his vicarious resurrection from the dead, which God the Father accepted and validated the sacrifice of the Son. He was raised for our justification, Paul says in Romans 4.25. If you want to benefit from the summer and not waste your time or waste your life, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today and be saved, Paul says to the Philippians jailer. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, that's your application. Where you sit, forsake your sin, turn from your sin, and embrace the all-glorious, all-lovely, all-beautiful Savior who died for the forgiveness of your sins. This is the overarching purpose of the Gospel of John, that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have everlasting life in his name. Come. Come and drink freely of the waters which are free to you. If you're thirsty, come. If you're hungry, come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest, the Savior says. D.A. Carson writes in his commentary, he says that John's purpose is not merely academic. He writes in order that men and women may believe certain propositional truth. The truth that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus. The Jesus whose portrait is drawn in this gospel. But such faith is not an end in itself. You see, this faith is directed to the goal of personal eschatological salvation. By believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of the gospel of John more broadly speaking, and more narrowly, the upper room discourse. Well, that brings us to a second encompassing purpose, which is the more immediate purpose of this section, which is this, what we said earlier, it is to be prepared 
to live and minister apart from the physical presence of Jesus. You see, in this sense, the upper room discourse serves to encourage and equip those who already believe. Robert Gramacchi in his New Testament survey says this. He says, the upper room discourse details the night before Jesus' crucifixion. Christ met with his disciples in the upper room to set before them new responsibilities and privileges that would be theirs as a result of his death, resurrection, and ascension, and the subsequent descent of the Holy Spirit. The upper room discourse is included to prepare Jesus' followers to live and to minister apart from his physical presence amongst them. Now, before we conclude our survey of the upper room discourse this morning, there's one other introductory insight that I want to present before you, and it is this. I want to consider the themes of the upper room discourse. While we could appraise numerous themes that are woven together throughout this section, I want to concentrate our focus this morning on 10 specific themes. Now, I do want to note at the outset this morning that we are going to be covering a lot of ground in the upper room discourse. We're going to be flipping pages, so to speak. And so as we do that, I'm not going to discuss or comment too much on the ins and outs of these verses in respect to those who will be teaching us verse by verse through these sections. I just want to whet your appetite for what is to come this summer. And the first theme that I want to submit to you is this. The Upper Room Discourse teaches us on the deity of Jesus Christ. Just as the purpose of the Gospel of John was to present Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, so too the Upper Room Discourse serves that purpose. Turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 Specifically, verse 19. These are the words of Jesus. He says, From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass. For what purpose? So that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. That I am He. The transliteration from the Greek Septuagint of Yahweh's name in Exodus 3.14. Again, we see this in John 15, 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. In the high priestly prayer in John 17, 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before the world was created, before the, the framework of the world was established, the Godhead existed in perfect unity and harmony. A second theological theme and that I would want you to be aware of is the incarnation. You see, John and his gospel is emphatic that the divine logos, the eternal word who is himself God, became flesh and dwelt among us. John 13, 3 says, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. John 16, 28 says, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world, and I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. A third theme that you need to be aware of is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Colin Cruz, in his commentary, remarks 
that the difference between the synoptic gospels and the gospel of John is quite marked in respect to this teaching concerning the Holy Spirit, most notably in the Last Supper farewell discourse. In John chapter 14, verses 16 through 17, we read this. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Later in John 14, verses 25 through 26, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. John 16, verses 8 through 10, the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts the world concerning sin, judgment, and righteousness. And then John 16, verse 14 he, that is the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. The Holy Spirit will magnify, will glorify, will exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, will be as the spotlight that shines upon the person and work of Christ, magnifying his work. A fourth theme that you need to be aware of is Jesus' love for his own. From the first verse of John chapter 13 all the way through his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus' love for his own is evidenced everywhere. John 13, 1, Jesus knowing that his hour had come that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the telos. He loved them to the uttermost, to the, the maximum. John 15, verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. A few verses later in John chapter 15, verse 13, we have this grand statement. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Jesus' love for his own is not just theoretical. Jesus' love for his own was demonstrated in a historical event, his crucifixion. His laying down his life for his own. The just for the unjust. The righteous for the unrighteous. A fifth theme that you need to be aware of is Jesus' comfort to his disciples. Again, we come back to the goal that we had at the beginning but the entire 14th chapter of the Upper Room Discourse is bracketed by the comfort that Jesus provides to his disciples. John 14, verse 1 says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And later at the end of chapter 14, verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give it to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. The primary theme of the Upper Room Discourse is the comfort that Jesus provides to his disciples. 
provides to us. In the same way that he prays for his disciples in John chapter 17, so too he prays for you. Even this morning where you sit. A sixth theme that you need to be aware of is the theme of obedience to Jesus' commands. And as we look at this thematic section, I want us to consider also the intricate connection that exists between loving God and keeping his commands. John 13, 17 says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. You see, notice it's not the one who merely knows these things, observes these things, is aware of these things, intellectually comprehends these things, but it is the one who does them. The longest chapter of the Bible, Psalm 119, opens with this introduction. It says, How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of Yahweh. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies. John 14, 15, a verse that undoubtedly many of you probably know. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love him, you will keep his commands. If the latter is not true or evident in your life, then it is evidence that the former is patently false. In other words, if you do not keep his commandments, not as a perfection, not of everyday astute perfection and obedience to the commands of God, but the overall direction, the overall pattern, the habitual, consistent framework and disposition of your life, if you love him, you will keep his commands. The words of Jesus couldn't be any clearer in John 14. He says in verses 23 through 24, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. and My father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. A seventh theme that you need to be aware of is that of loving one another. Again, we see this in the first epistle of John, but John chapter 13 says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. A theme which undergirds the entire upper room discourse is Jesus' departure, his imminent, his soon departure. It's really the historical context for Jesus preparing his disciples for future life and ministry apart from his physical presence amongst them. John 13, 33 says, Little children, I am with you a little while longer. John 17, 11, Jesus says, I am no longer in the world. So certain, so sure is Jesus of his imminent resurrection and departure to the Father. He says, I am no longer in the world as he prays on behalf of his own. A ninth theme that saturates the discourse is the doctrine of election. Again, Jesus' love for his own. It is a discriminating love. Jesus loves his own, his body, his bride. John 13, 18 says, I do not speak of all of you. That was when Judas was still in their midst. 
I know the ones that I have chosen. John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. John 17, verse 2, Jesus prays, even as you, O Father, have given me authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given me, he may give eternal life. We meet this group multiple times in the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John, this group of those whom the Father has given me. In other words, a particular people that God the Father gave as a love gift to God the Son, an eternity path, a people for his own possession, a people that he would come forth and that he would redeem from their iniquities and their sins. A tenth theme that I want us to consider this morning is the dichotomy that exists between Christians and the world. The separation, the dichotomy that exists between Christians and the world. The betrayal of Judas compared to the disciples in John chapter 13 serves as the prototypical example of what this looks like. You see, Judas was of his father, the devil, while the disciples were children of God. Again, we've already read a portion of this, but in John 15, 18 through 21, Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it has hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Friends, as you testify for the glory, the supremacy, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ in evangelistic endeavors, one of the common things that hinders our evangelism is what the other person might think of us. What if we don't have all the answers to their questions? But you can be assured that as you engage in your evangelistic endeavors with the unbeliever, that it's not you that they're rejecting. They're rejecting your Lord. They're rejecting his message of salvation. Not you. The world will hate you because it hated me. Jesus in John chapter 17 he discriminates on behalf of his disciples and those of the world. He says, I ask on their behalf, that is the disciples, I do not ask on behalf of the world. Later on in verse 14, he says, I have given them your word, that is the disciples, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And while it's not up here, let me give you an 11th theme free of charge. And that is prayer. That is prayer. John 17, verses 1 through 25. We see the Lord, the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, the great high priest who partook of flesh and blood so that he might ransom those of the same nature, so that he might intercede on behalf of them. The one who was tempted in every way as we were yet without sin, he intercedes. He prays on behalf of you. For the throne of God. John chapter 14, verse 13 says, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. A person's departing words can have lasting and enduring significance. 
This is true with noteworthy men of our age, such as Martin Lloyd-Jones. But how much more should it be in the case of our Lord Jesus Christ? In the upper room discourse, we have a record of Jesus teaching and preparing his disciples on the eve of his passion. Jesus gives his farewell address, his departing words of encouragement and instruction to the disciples. And beginning this Wednesday, Lord willing, we will have the privilege and the opportunity to study verse by verse through this marvelous section of Scripture, beginning in the first verse of the 13th chapter of John. Now, the guys in my small group will let you know that I love to give homework. And I want to give you some homework this morning. I want to encourage you for your own preparation and for your own spiritual good to read throughout the upper room discourse at least once per week through the duration of our summer. That's five chapters, 155 verses. Break that down, equivalent to about 22 verses per day. That is very doable. But to immerse yourself in the thought, in the flow, in the heart of the Savior, there is no greater pursuit, no greater endeavor. Pray that God would accomplish his purposes through this study in the Roots ministry at large and then individually in your own heart. Would you, by God's grace, know and cherish our Savior with a greater passion, a greater zeal, a greater adoration and affection? Would you be comforted with the love that Jesus Christ has for his own? Would you be encouraged and compelled to faithful service to the Lord Jesus Christ? I want to conclude this morning with providing you with a quote from the great 19th century Bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, to excite you and encourage you for the journey that we're about to embark on together. J.C. Ryle says this about the Upper Room Discourse. He says, In every age, the contents of these chapters has been justly regarded as one of the most precious parts of the Bible. They have been meat and drink, the strength and comfort of all true-hearted Christians. Let us ever approach them with peculiar reverence. The place whereon we stand is holy ground. Let that excite you for our study as it excites me. Let's pray this morning. Oh, Father, we thank you for the glorious reality of our Savior. We thank you that in your word that we have a window into Christ's heart the night before he offered his life in the stead of his own, we get a glimpse, an understanding of his heartbeat. Oh God, would we, by your grace, grow in an adoration and affection for the Savior? Would we be encouraged together to faithful service of our Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of a hostile and a perverse generation? Oh God, seal your word to our hearts this summer. Encapsulate our thoughts in our minds so that we would be ever transformed into the image of this Savior whom we love so dearly. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.